So let's just bow our hearts as we come humbly before God's incredible word, shall we? Father God, as we look this morning at this concluding part of the book of Revelation, which is the concluding book of the Bible, Lord, just open our eyes to the truths you've revealed here. Lord, remind us as we study these things that you gave this revelation of Jesus Christ so that John could record the things that we should know, that we should understand the things that are coming to pass in this world. But the Lord also that we should not be afraid, we shouldn't be like those that have no hope. And so this morning I pray that as we study these scriptures together, you just fill us with just an awe and Lord a great reverence for our holy God and for the incredible salvation that you have given us. But Lord also with a sense of urgency as we consider this world in which we live. And Lord, all that is awaiting those who have rejected you, who have rejected the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. So Lord, now we just commit this time to you. Lord, be exalted, be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. 48 sessions ago, we started in the book of Genesis. The book that looks at the beginning of everything, of course, and now we're concluding. It's been an incredible journey. We've seen so much on our journey this year through the Bible. But to conclude then, we're looking in the book of Revelation this morning. And as we said last week, this book reveals Jesus Christ in his majesty and glory. It sees him enthroned on the throne of David. That is one of the most common themes that we find throughout the Old Testament and even through the New Testament. As Gabriel comes to Mary and announces that she's going to have a child by the Holy Ghost, she make, Gabriel makes the statement that this child will sit on the throne of David. And incredibly, at Christmas time every year, we hear the carols and people enjoy singing those carols. But there are declarations, most of them, that the King of Israel is coming. Noel, Noel, born is the King of Israel. All those carols speak so much of this theme, that Jesus will sit on the throne of David. Now that's a national throne in Israel. Jesus never sat on the throne of Israel when he was here the first time. These are all prophetic scriptures looking at what is yet to come. Which means Israel must endure as a nation. And of course in the current political climate how interesting it is that we see so many attacks. And as Jared highlighted a moment ago, so much anti-Semitism going on around the world. Um, But when you look at these things you start to see why. You start to be able to join all the dots together. Well, again, this book firmly establishes Jesus as the only saviour of mankind. And the only way to God. And again, we said last time that Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings and Revelation, therefore, is the book of endings. It foretells the end of this order of things, the way things are at the moment. It tells us the end of Satan's rule. And it tells us the end of all false religions and the false religious systems that we see around the world. It also brings to an end man's government, man's government of this world. And also it clearly shows the destiny of the church, the destiny of the nation of Israel... And then also the destiny of all unbelievers. Such an important book to give us a real perspective of not just the times we live in, but God's plan throughout the ages as well. And Revelation ties together all the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies. Once again, in the 404 verses that we find in this book, there's over 800 allusions to 
bits in the Old Testament, verses and references in the Old Testament. So in order to understand this book of Revelation, we need to understand and have a good grasp of things in the Old Testament. And we'll be referring back to some of those things this morning. Again, it takes us from the current order of things into an eternity with Jesus enthroned as the universal King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, once again, just want to dispel the myth because so many people will tell you that Revelation is a very difficult book to understand and you know steer clear of it. Um, some years ago, the Anglican Church were meeting and they had a conference and it was agreed that they would not teach or talk about the book of Revelation because it was too difficult. Now, I was told that by an Anglican minister who was actually at that conference. Um, now, that's not the only church um, or church group or system um, to try and avoid this book. As we've mentioned before, the Catholic Church, um, well, they don't even have this book in their Bibles. But we're told in verse 1 that the purpose of this book was to show unto his, as in God's servants, the things that must shortly come to pass. So, the whole purpose of this is that we might know, not that it would be hidden, You see, also we find that God will then use signs. But we're very familiar with signs. We use signs all the time in our daily lives. You know, but then we find in the text and the context, we have an explanation of what those signs mean. Proverbs 25 verse 2 also says, It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honour of kings is to search out a matter. So we need to be mindful that God doesn't just give everything in kind of Janet and John format for us. And there are some things that we do need to dig into. But God has purposely done that so that those who are diligent, those that really want to learn and grow and, and seek God, will find out these things. But it's not hard. It's not complicated. But just, of course, as Satan hates the book of Genesis because it reveals him as the one that deceived humanity and really brought about this current situation, obviously he hates Revelation because it shows his ultimate destiny and defeat as well. <clears throat> and he obviously records those things in advance. Now, we're given the kind of a a chronology in the book itself. We're told in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, John being told, write the things which you have seen. Now, that will be the vision that he sees in chapter 1. Then the things uh, that are, which would have been the churches that exist at that time, the letters to the seven churches, and then the things that shall be hereafter. And that takes us really from chapter 4 on to the end of the book in chapter 22. So we have a kind of divinely inspired um, summary, in a sense, or breakdown of how we're to look and view this book. Now again, just to uh, remind ourselves last week, we went through looking at the introduction, John's vision of Jesus in chapter 1. And incidentally, so much of what we know about Jesus, we draw from this book. If you think of all the things you know about Jesus, we know lots from the Gospels in in certain aspects, but this reveals Jesus as he really truly is, as the King of Kings. We have the letters to the seven churches that Jesus himself authors in chapters 2 and 3. And we looked last time that they have this prophetic application spanning the history of the church as well. Then we're introduced to the throne room in heaven and seemingly the title deed to planet earth um, is there in view. And the, the challenge is who can open it? It has to be a relative of Adam. If anybody's to claim back the earth from, from Satan who currently has t- title and dominion over the earth, if anybody's to claim that back, they have to be a relative of Adam. And we're told that John weeps convulsively, sobs convulsively, effectively is what the Greek tells us. And he cries because he recognises that there isn't anybody until suddenly there 
on the throne is the Lamb, as one who had been slain. And Jesus is worthy. Not only is he worthy because he's sinless, but also because he's a relative of Adam. He's a kinsman of Adam, and therefore legally is in a position to redeem, to purchase back the title of the earth. And that's what we then start to see going on through the rest of the book of Revelation. We see the church also in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. After the the time of the rapture, we we see the church there before the throne, worshipping and praising uh, our King and our Lord. And it's very clear that it's referencing the church as we have these 24 elders, representative of the church. Again, back in Chronicles, David uh, uh, categorize the priesthood into 24 courses, 24 symbolic of the whole. And so we have here, and, and it's not, you know, we, we have a number of things that God seems to have done this way. We have 24 hours in a day, uh, the whole day uh, broken down into these 24. So God seems to use these numbers and these patterns in various ways. Um, but the um, elders that we see uh, in chapters 4 and 5 clearly are the church because they are the ones that are clothed in white robes. Clo- they have these crowns of gold upon their heads. They lay their crowns before Jesus' feet and so on. But then that leads on to chapter 6 onwards. And there we get to the beginning of sorrows. Now that's a term that Jesus himself um, speaks of in Matthew chapter 24. And it begins this first period of three and a half years. And again, we're giving very clear details of that in the text. We're told of the, exactly the number of days, the number of months. Um, so we know it's a period of three and a half years. And the first thing we see are these seven seals that are open. And as each seal is kind of peeled back, um, it leads on to another judgment or something that's going to come upon the earth. Then we have um, uh, chapter uh, chapter 7, kind of a parenthetical chapter that's just inserted. 144,000 Jews are sealed. Now, most commentators feel that the purpose of their sealing, their protection, protection if you like, um, is so that they can then go out and be evangelists during this period of time. It's not explicitly stated in the text, but that seems to be the general consensus of, as to what they'll do. Um, we also see a great multitude that are gathered in from the tribulation, those that after the church has been raptured, after this period of, of horrendous things start happening on the world, uh, on the earth, and we see billions of people dying in the wars and the famines and all those kind of things that will come upon the world. Many people will repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ, and we see that they're taken out of the tribulation. Then we find that we get to the trumpet judgments uh, in chapters eight and nine, and then finally in chapter ten, really it's times up. Uh, we have this angel that declares that time shall be no longer. Some people mistakenly think that it puts an end to time. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, you know, really it's kind of Jesus saying, coming ready or not. And that's exactly what's going on there. Um, and really what we then have is comments of things that also will take place, not only during the first three and a half years, but also in the middle of the week. One of those being the two witnesses that will prophesy and preach during the first three and a half years in Jerusalem. They'll eventually be killed and then raised to life again. And the world will marvel at these things. Also in the middle of the week, we find in chapter 12, we'll see this in a moment where we're going to start. But the woman and the dragon, uh, we'll comment on the moment. Then we're introduced to the beast, or antichrist as we know him better, and the false prophet. And then the 144,000 that we saw in chapter 7, in chapter 14, will be caught up to God's throne. They'll be raptured. And then we lead on to the final part of this, the last three and a half years, the great tribulation, uh, of which Jesus said himself, that you know, unless those days be shortened, no flesh should be saved. 
Uh, and we'll, we'll look at some of those things that are going to happen. And we have these bold judgments or vials being poured out upon the earth in chapter 15 and 16 particularly, chapter 16. There's another parenthesis that we see, though, in chapter 17 and 18, which give us events that occurred during the first three and a half years and up to the middle of the, the week, this seven-year period, um, where we find a judgment of the world's false religious systems. And then finally, we get to the marriage of the Lamb. So these events now that will take place after the tribulation, uh, and we see that the, the Lamb, Jesus, will return to this earth, uh, riding on a white horse with these uh, many crowns on his head and so on. Um, and that, of course, leads on to the second coming itself, when Jesus will come back to intervene at what is re- referred to as the Battle of Armageddon, uh, when the nations of this world will have ganged up against Israel, and Jesus, in response to their prayer, and they're crying out to him, will return to deliver them, and of course then will establish his own kingdom, and will reign on earth for a thousand years. We have in chapter 20, six times we're told it's a thousand years. A lot of people try and make it something other than that, um, to try and fit their own theories or ideas, but the text is very clear. Uh, Jesus will reign on this earth, on the throne of David that we mentioned a moment ago, for a thousand years, and restore this world to the way it should have been. And then that chapter concludes with the great white throne judgment where everybody is judged with, of course, the exception of the church who have already been judged. Our judgment took place at Calvary and Jesus took upon himself the wrath from God for our sin. But any who are not saved, any who are not born again, any who have not accepted Christ's offer of salvation, well, they then will be called before the great white throne and they'll be judged according to everything they've ever said or done or thought. All their works, all their deeds will be assessed. It'll be a very frightening and dreadful time. And then we get to these incredible chapters which just give us a glimpse into eternity. The new heavens and the new earth. And that concludes the book for us. So that's where we're going to go. Let's just have a look through then. So the first thing to talk about is the middle of the week. Now, I want to just clarify and help us to understand um, this term about week. What are we referring to? Well, we need to jump back into the book of Daniel, because Daniel gives us so much information that helps us understand this uh, book of Revelation in, in so many aspects. Now, in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, Daniel's praying a prayer. We have an introduction, the first three verses, and then Daniel prays for the people, for the Jews. And then he starts to pray for the city, praying for Jerusalem. And at that point, God interrupts him. Sorry, yes, God does interrupt him by sending Gabriel um, to come and speak to Daniel. And Gabriel gives Daniel this prophecy, this vision, if you like, of these 70 weeks. Now, what is that to us? We need to just clarify this for us, make it easy to understand. Now, Gabriel reveals to Daniel that not just the immediate future concerning the people of Israel, but the whole of their future, all the way to the end of time, is going to be revealed in what he's about to give about for them as a people and regarding their city. The entire future of the Jewish nation, here in just four verses in the book of Daniel. So the first verse in chapter uh, 9, verse 24, we get the scope of this prophecy. Then we have the first 69 weeks which is in verse 25. Then we have an interval in verse 26. And then finally, the 70th week, the final week. Now, again, what are we talking about when we say weeks? Well, for the Jews, they have a week of days, just like we do. We're familiar with that, no problem at all. We have a week of days. That's how God engineered everything. He created everything. He six days rested on the seventh and said that we're to do the same. But the Jews also have a week of weeks. 
Okay, so the first week being equivalent, if you like, to Monday, the second week being equivalent to Tuesday, and so on. So they have uh, this period of seven weeks. Now that typically will take them from the time of Passover up to the time of Pentecost. And that's the way they use it in their calendar. And you can see the scriptural references there if you want to do a bit of homework yourself. They also have a week of months, so a period of seven months. Now that will be this period, we're really starting with the, the feasts in the spring, going forward to the seven months to the feasts that occur in the autumn. And then finally, they have a week of years, a period of seven years. You remember in the book of Genesis when um, Jacob um, decides or gets married, thinking he's getting married um, to Rachel, he ends up with Leah. And then Laban says to him, fulfill her week. In other words, work for another seven years and you can have her too. So he ends up with these two wives uh, and so on. But that, that, that phrase week there is used in that context for a period of seven years. And elsewhere in scripture, uh, we find that also used. So we're talking about, when we talk about a, a week in this context, we're talking about a period of seven years. Now if we look at the, the prophecy in Daniel, we read, that Daniel's told in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So at this time, Daniel in Babylon, I believe at this point the Jews had just gone home a year or two before this. Um, but their city lies in ruins. The temples are lying in ruins. And what Gabriel is saying is there'll be a command. Somebody's going to issue a decree, a command to restore and build Jerusalem. Well, that's your starting point. And then he says, from that point unto the Messiah, the prince. And the word prince there, Nagid, it's talking about the king. It's talking about the one who is elected, one who's going to rule. Until the time the Messiah comes, there's going to be a period of 49 years, okay, and then 434 years is what we're told. So 480 Three years uh, is the total amount of time um, that we're given. And we're told the street should be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And that's exactly what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah deal with. Now, that command was given, we know, historically on the 1st of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, uh, 445 B.C., a decree by this Persian king, Artaxerxes Longimonus. He gives us this decree in the 20th year of his reign. And we can do the maths. We can count forward. Now, we can even convert it into the number of actual days. It's 173,880 days is this 483-year span that we're told that from the decree being given until the Messiah, there'll be this time. And we know from history that on the termination of that period of time, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan, AD 32, claiming himself as the king. It's the only day Jesus allows himself to be worshipped as the king of Israel. In fact, he even sets up the whole event. He goes and tells the disciples to get a donkey. And that's significant in itself, because when a king would ride in a time of um, uh, peace, they would come, they would typically ride in on a donkey. We see Solomon do that. When they come in time of war, they would ride on a horse. Now again, when Jesus comes back the second time, he won't be riding a donkey, he'll be riding on a horse. But the first time, Jesus came to bring peace. And so we have this incredible, dramatic fulfillment of this prophecy to the very day. Over 500 years beforehand, uh, this had been prophesied. But then we're told that after this period of time, after three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off. Now, of course we know that's true. Not for himself. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He's the propitiation, the payment in full, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And then we're told, the people of the prince that shall come. So, 
and that she'll destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, a little bit of deduction. We know who destroyed the city and the sanctuary. It was the Romans. Therefore, the prince that shall come must be of those people. So the one that's coming has got to be of the Romans in some way, shape, or form. We'll talk about that later. And we're told he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. This last final period of seven years, he's going to ratify an agreement with Israel and the surrounding nations. But then we're told that in the midst of the week, he, that's the prince that shall come, is going to cause the sacrifices and the offerings um, to cease. Okay, in the middle of the week. So after the three and a half year point, in the midst of that point, he's going to cause the sacrifices and the oblations, the offerings to cease. So clearly for that to happen, Israel must be back in the land, which they now are, and they must have a temple built and they must be in the process of sacrificing. Now you just think on a world scale today, what would it take for the governments of the world to consent to allow Israel to start sacrificing animals on their temple mount? Well, We've got a number of issues. Firstly, the Dome of the Rock is there to start with. And there's possible uh, answers to these questions that we could dig deeper if we had the time. But I'll just lay these out there for things for you to ponder. But all of those things have got to take place, uh, which means we're living in very interesting times as we look at what's going on in the Middle East. But whatever happens, Antichrist will stop these um, sacrifices just as his forerunner did. Back in 167 BC, we have a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who is, in a sense, playing the, um, the, the matinee performance of what this eventually will become. Jesus spoke of this. He said in Matthew 24, When you therefore, speaking to the Jews, shall see the abomination of desolation, or this abomination that causes this desolation of the temple. Is it talking about an image, an idol that's going to be placed in the holy place, just as Antiochus Epiphanes had done. And he says, When you see this, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Stand in the holy place. And then we have added in the text, Whoso reads, let him understand. Now, you and I this morning, we've just read that. There's an onus on us to understand this. Not just to say, oh, it's too complicated. Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 11 give us far more detail about this uh, individual Antiochus Epiphanes and also about the Antichrist who will come with a, in a sense, a carbon copy or really the fulfillment um, of the model that we saw laid down historically. So Antichrist now takes the, the title role, in your, if you like, in this full stage play of which Antiochus has been the first part back in 167 BC. And so, moving on, we have this interval, this church age that we, uh, by grace, we're living in now, where the gospel has gone out to the whole world. But then what will happen is Antichrist will confirm this covenant for this period of seven years, and in the middle of that time, He's going to stop Israel sacrificing and suddenly will turn on Israel. And we'll comment more of that in a moment. Now, of course, some interesting things we observe. <clears throat> Firstly, when Antichrist comes, we read in Revelation 6, he comes on a white horse, imitating Christ, of course, with a bow. Now, a bow being the sign of a covenant, just as we see back in Gen- Genesis, that the rainbow was a sign of a covenant. And that's exactly what he does. And that triggers, it triggers this final seven-year period. But in the middle of that... He's going to stop the sacrifices we've mentioned, so the temple must be rebuilt. And he's going to set up this abomination of desolation in the temple, this idol in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And again, that statue, if it's going to go in the Holy of Holies, means that the temple must also be rebuilt. Now, if you go to Israel today, you can go to the Temple Institute. That's a model of the temple. 
um, that they're looking to rebuild. Uh, now, whether they'll be able to rebuild the outer court area as well, uh, if you look at Ezekiel, the suggestion they won't be able to rebuild the outer court for different reasons. Um, that's the menorah that they've actually made. You can see people here. So it's a very, very large um, object. Um, they've since this photo was taken um, they've actually moved this now within sight of the temple mount the Jews are really very very serious about rebuilding their temple this isn't just some kind of ancient prophecies these are things that are happening right now you can go to the temple institute and you can see there's you can't quite see so clearly on the screen here but this is uh, a high priest not a real person obviously um, but all the clothing um, with the ephod and the linen garments and everything that the priest would wear it's already been made from the right material Materials, it's there. They've got it ready, prepared already. This is the altar of incense, uh, which again, overlaid with gold, also prepared, ready in the Temple Institute. The table of showbread, this is where the bread that was to be put into the temple, 12 loaves for representing the 12 tribes, that's already been constructed in the Temple Institute. They're just waiting for the go-ahead. Some character there holding a, one of the top, the old oil dishes um, from the top of the menorah, this, this light-bearing candlestick, lampstand, whatever. And Jesus, Paul, John, all make reference to the fact that the temple will be rebuilt. Now, the problem again we have, I said a moment ago, the Dome of the Rock sits on the Temple Mount. But if we were to stand on these steps that you can see here, this ascent that goes up to the top here, and you look back the other way, you get to this area. Now, there's some interesting research that suggests that the original temple that Solomon, that David had built, that Solomon actually built himself, um, this was the area that it was built on. Now, there's a fountain there at the moment, but there's easily enough space in this area for the Jewish temple to stand alongside the Dome of the Rock. Now, that's one of a number of theories, but it's very interesting because it means that we don't have to see the Dome of the Rock destroyed. It could be that there'll be an earthquake that would destroy it. It could be war. It could be all sorts of things. And it may be that the temple will be built over the place where the Dome of the Rock stands, but in today's political climate, that's probably unlikely. But it may well be that this, if they find other evidence to support it, this may well be the site that's chosen to rebuild the temple already on the Temple Mount. So, interesting thoughts there. Now, as I said already, those two witnesses are going to be killed during this period of time and then raised to life and then raptured. Antichrist's ten-nation empire will come to power. He's going to subdue three of those nations uh, and be left in, in total charge. We're also going to see that the one-world church will be destroyed at this point, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, as a result of Antichrist effectively breaking his covenant with Israel, the Jews are going to be forced to flee into the wilderness for three and a half years. Now, we're told that they're going to flee to Eden. Now, we'll talk about this in a moment. Many think the area will go will be a place called Petra. You may be familiar. But what is interesting is back in Genesis 33:18, as Jacob is coming back into the land after being away with Laban, you remember that Esau, his brother, comes out to meet him. And Esau says, come home with me. Come back to my place, as it were. And Jacob says, we will come. But if you notice, he never goes. Because then Jacob sets up camp with his family in the land of Israel. But you see, it's prophetic, because he will go, but it just hasn't happened yet. Jacob, or the descendants of Jacob, Jacob, his name being changed to Israel, will indeed go to Edom, to the place where his brother was. And they'll stay there for this period of three and a half years, where they'll be protected supernaturally by God. The mark of the beast, 
typically we have this 666 and there's a very interesting study we can do around that is it numerical is it other things than that we can talk some other time maybe but this will be introduced and it will become a system for buying and selling unless you have this mark you'll not be able to buy or sell we're going to find also at this point the 144,000 Jews will also be raptured seemingly their work is done so let's now with that kind of middle of the week kind of dealt with let's look at some of the specifics let's look at uh, chapter 12 and we have we're told verse 1 there appeared a great wonder in heaven a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars and she being with child cried travailing in birth and pained to be delivered and there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns upon his heads And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born and she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days 1260 days three and a half years is the time that she'll spend Israel will spend in the wilderness now let's try and understand what we've just read there firstly who is the woman who is the man child and who or what is that red dragon that we just saw well verse 9 identifies the dragon as the devil psalm 2 identifies the man child as Jesus the one who will rule all nations with a rod of iron and genesis 3:15 introduces us to the woman. You see, in one sense it's the the mystical eve if you like, if some commentators put it, put it that way. It's the seed of the woman that was promised through Eve would come down and the the Messiah would be born of a woman. And all the way down through history, we see God engineering circumstances. We we see so many attacks upon this line to try and stop the Messiah coming. But this is the woman if you like mystically that's being portrayed here. The whole purpose of course was the the protected line of the seed. This woman is in a sense that protection for the seed. Now what God does, we look back in uh, verse 1 again, this great wonder in heaven, a woman, but notice the details because people are very quick to say oh the woman is Israel. Well in one sense they're right but there's a little bit more detail we need to understand because we're told the woman is greater than Israel it's not just Israel the woman was clothed with the sun the moon and the 12 stars her clothing is Israel again reference to Genesis 37 the dream that Joseph has seeing his dad Jacob as the sun Leah as the the moon and his brothers as the 12 stars So it's clearly representing Israel, but this woman is clothed with Israel. And of course that's what God did. God called Abraham out of this idol worshiping uh nation at the time, calls him into the promised land, and through him all nations would be blessed. It would be through him that God would bring the Messiah. And so Israel become the protective covering to ensure that the Messiah can be born. And that's why Israel was so constantly attacked by other nations by all sorts of uh, mechanisms the devil tried to use to destroy them. They were the divinely appointed protection 
to ensure the safe delivery of the seed of the woman, the Messiah. Now notice we're told that this woman is travailing in birth, pained to be delivered. Now that speaks of Israel's history (laughs) in such a, a clear, succinct kind of way. Matthew 24, Jesus again speaking to Jews. Understand, we saw this in our study of Matthew. These portions in Matthew's Gospel are dealing with the Jews. So many try and take them onto the church. But this says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and betray one another, and shall hate one another. Now, of course, that is true of the church, but it's specifically true of Israel, whom it is in reference to here. And it's in fulfilment of passages such as Deuteronomy 28, one of the most amazing chapters in the entire Bible. And then Jesus carries on, Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Well, you think of the Jews today, and that's true. But then we're told, He that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Well, just a, a little note here, just so you may not be able to read the text, let me read it for you. A new poll shows atheism on rise, with Jews found to be the least religious. The love of many has waxed cold. This is certainly true of Israel. Now, again, he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Now that can only apply to Israel. And Zechariah 9.9 tells us that two-thirds of the nation of Israel will be wiped out. We think the Holocaust was bad. What is coming upon the nation of Israel will eclipse the Holocaust in its magnitude. And just a horrible time that's coming. But... The church are never told to endure until the end. We're told very clearly, Jesus makes it very, very clear, we read it in Luke's Gospel and elsewhere, that we can escape the things that are coming upon the earth. That's what God has planned for the church. Because we are not to endure God's judgment again because it was dealt with at Calvary. But for the Jews that endure to the end, they shall be saved. Jeremiah 30 speaks there of the time of Jacob's trouble. And he says, but he shall be saved out of it. And again, this idea of a woman in travail, and we see this theme repeatedly through the Old Testament and even into the New. So after the woman, as in clothed now with Israel, has delivered Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus was then caught up to the throne. So the devil then turns his attention on Israel, on the woman. But God once again will protect her and she flees into the wilderness. Now again, I mentioned this a moment ago, many things will be Petra, which is in Jordan today. Now interestingly, Daniel chapter 11 verse 41 tells us that's one area that will not come under the control of Antichrist. Which is very interesting. Many of you will have kind of seen pictures like this before. There's this city in Petra that's been completely carved out of the rocks. There's a very, very narrow canyon that you walk through to get there. Uh, it's, it's almost uh, inaccessible by any other means than by kind of horseback camel or by foot. It's very difficult to get vehicles or anything there. Um, and we have this just amazing thing. You may, you may have seen films and so on that have used this uh, as a backdrop, but... Again, an incredible city uh, that's carved into the rock there. And many think this will be the place that Israel will flee to again. You see this little crack in the side of the rock. That's the entrance to this area. Uh, Not an easy place to access. Again, Jesus says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. Once again, this has to apply to Israel. It doesn't apply to the church. The church won't see that. It will have been gone. 
spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, again, whoso reads, let him understand, then, when that happens, let them which be in Judea, so again, can't apply to the church, flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. So Jesus speaks of the the uh, time that's going to be coming, and it's going to be such an important moment for Israel to just flee, to get out. And then we're told in Revelation 12 that a war will break out in heaven. Satan will be cast down to the earth. And he's denied access to heaven effectively from that point. You know, in the book of Job, Job Satan would go and present himself um, along with the other angels. We're told also that he's the accuser of the brethren, continually going before the throne and accusing us. Well, the good thing is we have an advocate with the Father. But then he will effectively indwell an individual who by this time will have risen to great international prominence. And no doubt would be a really lovely, charismatic character. Somebody who people will look at and think, you know, if we're going to have a president of the world, that's the kind of person we'd want. And then Satan will indwell this individual. You and I would know him better as Antichrist. And that leads on to chapter 13, which just starts, I stood upon the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. And we're given this imagery, having seven heads and ten horns, upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. Now if we do a bit of digging, all of these things we can start to understand. The seven heads, ten horns, and so on, we'll talk about in a moment. Um, But Antichrist, we're also told, will receive this kind of fatal head wound, and yet is miraculously healed. Now this will be one way of deceiving the world into following him. The world will wonder, and they're going to worship him. And of course, this is what Satan has been after right from the start. He wanted the world. He wanted dominion over the earth. He wanted man to worship him. He was, of course, the anointed cherub. And he wanted to carry on in that exalted position. Even the audacity of even trying to get his creator to worship him. Those temptations in the wilderness. Well, we have these seven heads and ten horns. And again, we look at this from a Jewish perspective, because this is how this, the context of this is. There's been uh, seven nations that have had authority or dominion over Israel. Egypt being the first, then Assyria, and then Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So that's what has been, and of course we're now waiting for this revised Roman Empire that will again come to prominence and This will be what Antichrist will be kind of head over. The ten horns, well that speaks of this ten kingdom world government under Antichrist. Now, some have already um, noted that the world has been divided into ten areas from a political perspective by some. Um, And the suggestion is maybe they will be the ten uh, ten areas. Uh, Or it could be ten literal kingdoms as we have it today. We have all sorts of international alliances and agreements and how this will play out, only time will tell. But there's no doubt this is how it will work. But then the false prophet is introduced to us in chapter 13. He'll do great signs and wonders. He's going to deceive people. They're going to be very impressed. How impressed today are people by signs and wonders? We've got churches that base everything they do on signs and wonders. I got to speak to somebody a week or so ago who went to a, a different church and um, I was just asking him about what they'd done on Sunday. And I said, what were you, were you teaching on? Oh, oh we, we, don't, we didn't read the Bible. I said, all right, okay, what did you do? Oh, we, didn't, we don't, don't pray or anything. I said, right. And he said, oh, no, no, it was just kind of a, kind of a miracle service and a kind of a Thanksgiving service. It's like, okay. <laughs> you know, people are very impressed by signs and wonders. And this, again, will be the ultimate deception. As this false prophet, um, in a sense, uh, trying to imitate the work of the Holy Spirit. 
He's going to give life to this statue. Now that's going to cause people to be impressed. And again, you, know, you just think of the times we live in. There was a time that the world would have been you know, oblivious to what's going on in some tucked away little place in the Middle East. But now with Sky News, BBC News 24, CNN, all these news channels, you know, the slightest thing happens and we've got camera crews lined up. Everybody's going to see these events. And he's going to cause all who receive the mark of the beast. Um, so anyone who doesn't receive that will be killed. <clears throat> okay, so let's move on from there into chapter 14. Again, the 144,000, I said, will be raptured. And we also get a prophetic overview of many of these things uh, given to us. And one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew 24 was that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now... The gospel of the kingdom is not the same gospel that we preach. It's different. You see, we preach, for want of a, a better expression, the gospel of the grace of God. That's the gospel we preach. John the Baptist preached the gospel of the kingdom. His gospel was, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And of course, that's what the Jews were expecting. That's what the disciples were expecting. They were expecting the Messiah to come and establish his throne on the earth. Even after the resurrection, they asked that question at the beginning of the book of Acts. Will you at this time restore the kingdom? And Jesus says, not yet, effectively. <clears throat> so we're told that the angels then, after the church is gone, will then preach this gospel of the kingdom. And we read in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having an everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made the heaven, and the sea, and the fountains of water. I, I just can't help but smile a little bit when I see this, because I just, there's almost... Maybe I'm wrong here, but it was almost just a kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing where this world has just so rejected God as creator. And the one thing that is kind of resounding through the book of Revelation is that God is the creator of all things. There's no time and chance and evolution and any of that nonsense. You know, the world has got to wake up and realize that God is the creator. And this, again, is repeated a number of times through this book. But these angels, um, or this angelic being, certainly uh, is given this task of preaching this everlasting gospel, preaching to them that dwell on the earth and so on. Well, in chapter 15, a very interesting chapter, because this is where, I believe, we see the fullness of the Gentiles come in. For a very significant reason. Verse 2 says, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Now this is very interesting, because what I think we're seeing here is a multitude again that come out of the tribulation, not by being raptured, but by being martyred. Those whom Antichrist and those following him would have killed because they weren't prepared to turn away from the truth that they discovered that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh and that salvation is only through his name. And so we see these individuals standing in heaven on this sea of glass uh, after they've been martyred. These are the last ones to come out of the tribulation, last believers. In Romans we're told, 
Paul speaking, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Now, part meaning that some of the Jews believed because they formed the early church. But the rest of Israel didn't believe and they were blinded. And that blindness is in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Until. What an important word that is. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And then this blindness will be lifted. And we read, And so all Israel shall be saved. All Israel. Both those that went into the form of the church and the rest of the nation. That blindness will be removed. That blindness, Luke 19, Jesus pronounces over the nation. For not knowing the time of his visitation. Not knowing the time he came. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now, whilst Israel are in the wilderness, as they're hiding, they're fleeing from, from Antichrist, we read in Hosea 5.15, I will go, God speaking, and return to my place. Now, that's just an interesting statement on its own. How could God return to his place unless he'd already left his place? And of course he did leave his place because some 2,000 years ago he left his place to come to this earth as a tiny baby to be born for us. We'll be looking at that more next week. Until they acknowledge their offence. Who? The Jews acknowledge their offence. And seek my face. The face of Jesus. And we're told in their affliction they will seek me early. Or the implication in the, the Hebrew is earnestly. So the Jews are going to get to this point whilst they're fled, they're in Petra or wherever they are in Edom, and they will then cry out to God. And just as Zechariah tells us, they will look upon me whom they've pierced and they will mourn. And so we see that the last of the Gentiles are gathered in, the fullness of the Gentiles, and when that takes place at the same time, this blindness is removed from the eyes of Israel. Just as, as Jesus said, just as Paul uh, elaborated on in the book of Romans. And this will be, I believe, when the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. I believe after this point there will not be a single person saved during the tribulation. And the reason for that is, in the early stages, everything is in measure. We find a third of the trees, a third of the rivers, a third of the grass from the judgments upon them and so on. But when we now move into this next portion, as we move into chapter 16, this is the Great Tribulation. And this is just beyond anything we can imagine. You know, Hollywood has made loads of films, and too many to, to list or mention, but all talking about disasters that come upon the earth, you know, meteorites hitting the earth, the core of the earth stopping to spin, or all sorts of you know, weird and wonderful ideas and how we're going to solve the problem. Of course, every time man comes on and solves the problem, not this time. They think they're going to be able to do it. They get so arrogant that they even march against Jesus Christ when he returns. Now again, our time scale of this, the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation beginning. That first period of three and a half years we've looked at, and then now we're looking at the great tribulation. Now the last three and a half years, the first vial is poured out, and we see grievous sores on those that receive the mark of the beast. Now these may well be kind of cancerous sores as a result of whatever. Some people have suggested there'll be microchips implanted in kind of the right hand or the forehead or whatever else. And lots of interesting uh, studies behind some of these things as to why and so on. But um, some of you will know Dr. Vij Sidero. Doc, uh, Vij gave me a great book. Uh, you probably can't see that in all clarity, and you're probably glad you can't, actually. Um, but uh, as you know, uh, Vij is a, a medical uh, surgeon, um, a fellow of the Royal uh, College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. 
And in this book, he, this is a book that he produced for the medical profession. He lists all manner of sores and bumps and horrible things that can erupt on your skin. Uh, I've got a copy of it. Anybody wants to borrow it? A little bit of reading. Uh, you're welcome to borrow it. Um, but you know, it's a horrible thing that's going to happen. Those that have taken the mark of the beast suddenly come out in these sores. The second vial is going to be poured out. We're going to see, then the sea will be turned to blood and everything in it dies. Now this isn't, in part, this is everything that we're told. That's going to have a massive effect even on the oxygen content. Most of our oxygen comes from plankton in the sea. And suddenly if everything's dying in the sea, that's going to have a profound effect. We take it for granted, we wake up in the morning and we take a deep breath and fill our lungs and so on. Well, suddenly, if you're going to gasp for breath because the oxygen is vastly reduced, you know, whether these things will happen, I don't know, but there's going to be very significant changes going on on the planet. And there's some very interesting studies that have been done by scientists who are Christians as to how this will be a purging effect on the earth as well, getting it ready for the millennial reign of Christ. As things will return to the way it should have been. I mean, we talk so much and we hear so much on the news about the way we're polluting the planet. Well, God's got his own plan and system seemingly to resolve these things. The third vial will be poured out and we're going to find the rivers are going to turn to blood and everything in them will die. We read in verse uh, 5 and 6, And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, um, which are and was and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink. For uh, they are worthy. Now, if you remember back in Revelation 6, there were souls under the altar that had been martyred. And they said, how long until you avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? And they were told, not yet. But now, we get to this point, and this angel seemingly interrupts the flow of things just to make mention of the fact, by the way, although this seems horrific and horrible, God is just. And this is the point that God will now avenge the blood of the saints and the prophets. And if we were to spend a bit of time and do a study of those that have been killed, whose blood has been shed because they were saints, you know, even back through the Inquisition, so many horrible stories and accounts. But, you know, in the last 100 years, last century, there have been more people whose blood has been shed because they were Christians than at any other time in history. And I'm sure some of you have heard and know of some of these horrific stories. There was a, an account, I recall, of a young man uh, in Africa. I'm not sure whereabouts in Africa. But these people had found him. And because he was a Christian, they'd nailed his hands and his feet to some wood. And the incredible thing was, he was being interviewed by Voice of the Martyrs. And he said you know, that he was quite happy to forgive these people. He said, because Jesus forgave me. Now, for most of us, if that happens, certainly even to a loved one or to someone we know, let alone ourselves, you'd think it would be very hard to have that kind of level of forgiveness, to forgive somebody that had done something that was so barbaric and cruel. Well, God is going to judge those that do these things. And so this angel just steps on the scene just to remind us that God is absolutely just in doing what he's doing. We then get... The fourth vial being poured out, and the sun is going to heat up. Now, this really is global warming. You know, people worry about it now. That's nothing to worry about. This is the big problem. And the sun is going to heat up. Men are going to be scorched because of the heat of the sun. And then the fifth vial being poured out, we're going to find darkness that's painful over the whole land. And by the way, an interesting study is to look at the plagues in Egypt and to look at these uh, vials and so on that are being poured out during this time. And you'll see an interesting parallel 
And of course, what was happening was that in Egypt, God was pouring out his judgment against the gods of the land, the so-called gods of Egypt, showing that they were no gods at all. God doing the same thing here in the book of Revelation. The sixth vial is being poured out, and this time the river Euphrates will dry up to make way for the kings of the east that we are told. And then finally the seventh vial is poured out. And then we hear great uh, hail, a, meteor, uh, sorry, a major earthquake and so on, with these hundred pounds or so hailstones falling upon the earth. Now it's interesting because the crime of the earth is blasphemy. And if you look back in the Torah, the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. And it seems that God is going to be true to his word and he will use his own stones, which are bigger, bigger than the ones that we've got. Uh, and there will be this kind of incredible uh, meteorite and uh, hailstorm on the earth during this time. Okay, so just to give you a brief overview, we had the seven seals being poured or open and judgments uh, respective to those. Then these six trumpets uh, with the seventh trumpet just following this midpoint of the tribulation. Seven thunders, um, which we didn't actually go through, but then we've got the seven vials uh, that we've just been looking at this morning during this period of time, which will take us up to the end. Now, we now have a parenthetical passage. So let's just have a quick look at Revelation 17 and 18, and then we just draw to a close with the final chapter. So this is a really interesting portion, because I believe that this very much is a missing piece of the jigsaw for people. It's a pivotal chapter in regard to our understanding of history. It explains why there are so many false religions in the world. Of course, this is very seldom taught. It's replaced by misinformation and deceit. It unveils a reality that changes the way that we look at the world. Now, we're going to see in Revelation 17 introduced various characters, various players, if you like. We have a great whore that's introduced. And we'll be looking at uh, what she is. You can identify uh, some things about her, but what she is, you can understand. The real challenge is who she is. We have a scarlet beast that's introduced. We have these seven heads, seven mountains, ten horns, ten kings. Now, again, on the first glance, you think, oh, this is very complicated, but it's not if you just stick with what's revealed in Scripture. <clears throat> the symbols, again, uh, they're clearly explained in the verses that follow. And again, just to highlight, John said that we should know. The whole purpose of this book is that we must understand the things that will come to pass. Again, 1 Corinthians 14.33, Paul tells us God is not the author of confusion. Now, I'm going to give you the, the summary and I'm going to just look at the details. I believe that during the first three and a half years of the period of tribulation, the beginning of sorrows, this one world church will reign. This will be an amalgamation of all the religions on the earth that will come together. And they will have dominion during this first three and a half years. But then at the three and a half year point, the ten kings that will then come to power with Antichrist will hate this religious system and they'll want to cast it off. They don't want to be under its dominion, under its authority, and they will destroy it. Because by that point, Satan is done with it. He doesn't need it anymore. He's used this system to bring about this kind of one world church and religious system, but then he'll replace it, have everyone worship him from that point on. Now the reasons I believe that it has to occur during the first three and a half years, again, the, the ten kings destroy Babylon, but they don't come to power until that three and a half year point. Um, they'll have had enough of a rule, as I said. Also, trade by sea will be impossible during that last three and a half years. And yet we're told in Revelation 18, verse 17, that the people in the ships in the sea will look on and see her destruction. So just another little technical reason why that precludes it being later than this. And also... Um, 
Antichrist, as I said, will be worshipped by the entire world for the last three and a half years. There won't be any room for any other religious system during that time. Now, a lot of people, a lot of commentaries will place the judgment of this false religious system toward the end of this period of time. But I'm suggesting, if you look at the details, it has to occur at the midpoint of the tribulation. <clears throat> Acts 17.11, of course, be Bereans, search dil- diligently yourself. Right, the first thing I want to mention regarding 17 and 18 is that it's not two separate accounts. Some people think that we're looking at spiritual Babylon and political Babylon. This is this two separate things. Not at all. This is just one account. There were no chapter breaks in the original. Stephen Langton, in about the 12th century, introduced the chapters as we have them. Originally, this was just one theme that flowed through. And the theme is the judgment of the great harlot. 17 is going to give, a, give us her description, and chapter 18 will give us her destruction. so we start verse 1 and there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying unto me come here and I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sits on many waters so John is given this judgment Um, throughout scripture whoredom and adultery speak of unfaithfulness to God worship of serving someone or something instead of him and this was the crime, of course, of Israel in the Old Testament. And we see it in Ezekiel, Hosea, and elsewhere of Israel and their unfaithfulness. But this is now looking broader, the whole world. The first commandment, Exodus 20.11, is that you shall have no other gods before me, literally in my presence. And God doesn't want to be, as I said before, number one on the list of ten, but number one on the list of one. And because God is a jealous God, he wants to be worshipped alone. And of course... We've had this religious system that we've seen through the ages. We'll try and unpack it and explain for you. Now, first of all, the many waters imply this worldwide influence, and that's confirmed in verse 15. She'll draw people away from the worship of the one true God into spiritual adultery. And that's possibly the greatest crime and therefore deserves the strictest of judgments. Back in Exodus 21, the penalty for kidnapping was death. And in a sense, this is very similar to that. It's taking people away from God. It's deceiving people. We're told that the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and so on. And this wasn't just the common people, but the rulers of the earth have been intoxicated by this religious system. She's become irresistible to them and exerted power over them. Again, the fornication comes from the Greek root word pornea, it's where we get the word pornography in our vocabulary today. But it means unlawful, intimate indulgence. And the Bible worshipping false concept of God are often referred to as fornication for the unbeliever and adultery for unfaithful believers. Uh, the reference here, of course, being unbelievers, uh, is spiritual fornication that's being addressed. <clears throat> now, this implies that the kings of the earth have had a conscious decision to get involved in this uh, relationship of convenience for them. Now we find that the beast, this phrase the beast in scripture, and particularly in Revelation, is symbolic of the devil, antichrist, and his kingdom. It's used interchangeably in those terms, because their mission and their purpose are one and the same. Antichrist is empowered by the devil, and he's the ruler of the kingdom. So that's why we see this, um, and this image of the scarlet beast depicting this satanic power. Now again, we should note for the context, it's the beast who's full of names of blasphemy and who has the seven heads and ten horns, it's not the woman. But what should grab our attention is this woman, this religious system, is riding the beast. Riding, in a sense, this satanic power. So you've got a religious system that's seemingly in control of that which Satan would want to do. 
Now that should really make us sit up and start to ask questions about who is it we're looking at. Well, a quick fly through and we see a great photo fit. We're told the woman was arrayed, arrayed in purple and scarlet and so on. We're given these details. So first of all, it's a woman. It's a female entity in a sense that we're looking at. And there's a deliberate contrast, by the way, here with that which we've looked at already in chapter 12, which is that mystical Eve or clothed with Israel. And there's a definite contrast that's implied in the text. <clears throat> and this whore, this, this woman, represents everything that's unrighteous. And she is to prepare the way for the false messiah, just as the woman in Revelation 12 was to prepare the way for the true messiah. Again, the next thing about the clothing, she's got these specific colours. Now, just interesting, because we find there's three colours that were used in the tabernacle. And we have blue, purple, and scarlet, and they all have significance. Blue, though, is omitted here. Blue is referenced in the heavenly realm. So what we have, the colours that this woman is clothed in, represent the royal realm and the earthly realm. Now, the next thing we see is that she's rich beyond measure. And we go on. She has a cup in her hand full of things that are an offence to God as well. We could talk about the cup uh, that was used in the, uh, the tabernacle and how these things played out. But then we find this name uh, upon her head. Um, this name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now this is significant because there's something mysterious about her, something spiritual hidden, clearly. She's identified with Babylon. She is a mother which means she has children. Abominations started with her. Now that's a really important point. But so did the whole idea of these other harlots, the, the, the offspring of her. Mother of harlots and of abominations. And her influence is worldwide. We've seen that already. This title, Mystery, uh, something mystical or spiritual. Babylon, again, from the root word, um, Babel, meaning confusion. And this idea of the great, this is her title, um, huge. I think it was Ron Matson that uh, put her title this way, saying huge spiritual confusion. And that really is a summary of all false religion on the earth. Drunk with the blood of saints and the blood of martyrs, we're told. Now the saints, it's got to be a reference to the Jews, because uh, so many times the Jews are referred to as saints, because then we've got the martyrs of Jesus listed as a separate category. So we see all of these things. And John says, I wondered with great admiration. You know, it implies that he perceived and was amazed. It's like the penny drops and suddenly the lights go on. <clears throat> now, the angel asks him, why did you marvel? Really, kind of suggesting, you should have understood this, John. And really for us, as we start to look and we understand a bit of history and the scripture, we're then told about, this beast, uh, which you saw, is not. He's going to ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And again, that's clearly a reference to Satan himself, who indwelt um, Judas Iscariot and so on, and is yet to come. And then we're told, here's the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, mountains in scripture are almost always symbolic of kingdoms. A number of scriptures could be cited to show that. Followed by the next verse, which tells us there are seven kings. Well, that makes sense. If there's seven kingdoms, you expect seven kings. Told five have fallen, one is, the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. Okay. Now, <clears throat> this is borne out in history. If we look at the uh, kingdoms that have been around Israel, we looked already. Um, before Daniel, we had Egypt and Assyria. 
And then in Daniel chapter 2 and 7, we have Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. And then our finally our seventh kingdom, the final empire of Antichrist. And we looked at that briefly earlier and we see this consistent theme through the text. So the five have fallen, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, by the time that John is receiving this. One is, that was Rome at the time, and then the other has not yet come, which is the final empire of Antichrist. And we're told that those kingdoms give their power unto Satan, unto the beast. And then they continue for 42 months, that last period of the tribulation. Again, the waters that the woman sits on are the peoples and multitudes of the earth. Just implying, again, this whole domination by this false religious system uh, around the world. Okay, let's just draw this to a conclusion because we then go on. Who is the woman? What is the city? Well, some speculate. Some see her as the Roman Empire, the Roman Catholic Church. Some suggest the United States of America has been put forward. New York City. A revitalized nation of Babylon in Iraq, or a final one world religion centered in Babylon. All those ideas are put forward. But the most prominent idea is that this woman in Revelation 17 18 that's had this incredible influence, people suggest is the Catholic Church. Now, one of the reasons is that Rome was built on seven hills. But of course, the text isn't referring to the seven hills, it's talking about seven kingdoms. And of course, that doesn't really fit either. Let's just just go through the reasons why. Yes, the Roman Catholic Church is portrayed as a mother. She calls herself the Mother Church. Yes, she's clothed in purple and scarlet. She is rich, bedecked in gold and pearls and so on. And she is full of the filthiness of fornication. Full of mysterious inner groups and so on. And yes, identified with Babylon. Mother of harlots and abominations. Well, we could argue certainly that that is the case. And she sits on many waters. The Roman Catholic Church does have huge influence. So almost it seems that the photo fit is too good to be true. It just, surely we've now got our answer. Because the Roman Catholic Church has also shed the blood of Jews and Christians. But the Roman Catholic Church did not originate the abominations. Nor has it existed throughout the history of the world to deceive the nations. See, the power that has dominated the nations predates Rome and can be traced back to literal Babylon. Now this is why this is so significant, because if you remember way back in our studies earlier in the year where we're going through this, after the flood, Satan launched these very subtle threefold stratagems to try and corrupt, deceive the world, make the way for his man to rule. We have the world government to manipulate mankind against the seed. We have the false religious system we're talking about here to deceive mankind into following a seed. And then we have that seek and destroy plan. As Satan allowed these fallen angels to come and infiltrate with the idea of trying to annihilate and destroy the seed. So, false religion was established effectively at Babel. This is shortly after the time of the flood. Ham uh, has his son Cush, um, grandson of Noah, builds the Tower of Babel. Nimrod, his son, becomes the first world dictator after this. And then Nimrod is killed, some think it could have been by Shem, because of his iniquity, because he was getting into idolatry. And as he's then killed, his wife concocts this plan, saying that the child that she is now carrying is Nimrod reincarnated. And there begins the worship of mother and child. And so many other things, way, pardon me, way back in ancient Babylon. 
And so Nimrod, now reincarnated his son, and Semiramis become worshipped. She becomes known as the Queen of Heaven. It's referred to even in uh, Jeremiah and so on. Her son, who she names Tammuz, is also hailed as the promised seed. And then we get all sorts of things. We get trees that were chopped down and ornately decorated and put in people's houses. Does that ring a bell at all? Um, all these kind of things were done. Um, the idea of the Yule Log all go round about this time. The, the winter solstice and so on. Everything is tied up uh, with this and you can see the roots of almost every religion on planet Earth coming from this point. If you go in and you do the homework. Um, There's a great book by um, um, Reverend Alexander Hislop called The Two Babylons and the dots he helps to join together are incredible. Really very well researched but just showing that all these roots for this false religious system including every religious system we have in the world today with the exception of Christianity the true uh, religion if you like or the true faith uh, all of it has its roots back in Babylon. And so we can clearly identify who this individual is and when we jump Back to Revelation 18, or forward rather, uh, verse 4 just tells us that we should come out of this system. This system is corrupt. I'll let you take and study that further if you want to. We then get to chapter 19 and we get the second coming, the wedding of the bride of Christ. uh, And the second coming as Jesus will return, establish his kingdom. And then finally we move on to uh, the millennium and the great white throne judgment. What we have, again, the bride will come back with Christ at the second coming. The first resurrection will be complete. The tribulation saints will receive new bodies at this point. We'll have already received our new bodies prior to this at the time of the rapture. Um, the rest of the dead don't live again until the thousand years were finished. Okay, And then, of course, during this time, we have Jesus' rule from the throne of David uh, over the whole earth for a thousand years. And uh, Isaiah speaks much of this. Satan will deceive the nations for the last time. He's bound for this entire period of time uh, and unable to operate on the earth. And yet still, mankind will unite against Jesus. And then we move into the end of chapter 20. It says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And we're told that these books are open and the book of life is open. And unless your name is in there, well, eternity will be separate from God. And that is really the, the, the problem of hell. It's not the judgment of hell itself, although that is horrific, but it's being separated from your creator. And so the, the, the sea will give up the dead, hell, and so on. Uh, and these things are then judged. And then we move into eternity. We're told that uh, the day of the Lord, Peter says, will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. And that brings us then to the end of these things. And then John says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away uh, and there was found no place for them. And then we find that Satan himself uh, will be also cast into the lake of fire. He'll join the beast of the false prophet who will have already been cast there. Uh, and then begins, effectively, eternity from that point on. All the, the dead who have not accepted Christ will be judged, and those whose names are not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And then we have just this wonderful uh, explanation, which it would be lovely to spend time on, but I encourage you to read Revelation chapter 1 and 22. 
And look at all the weights of the church, all the weights of those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. It really, truly will be incredible. And it will be, as Gerald alluded to earlier, the restoration of what God intended. It will all be complete. Behold, I make all things new, God says. And the tabernacle of God, the dwelling of God will be with man. You know, in Eden, it started out that way. That's how God intended it to be, that man and God would work together. And we've gone through the last 6,000 years of human history. We've got this 1,000 years of the millennial reign. We've got the rebellion of the world at the end of that time. And God will put down all rule, authority and power. Jesus will be established as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we'll move into this eternity. And God will be our God. We will be his people. It will be beyond anything that our words can imagine or describe. Uh, we're just going to end with a time of praise. But before we do that, I just want to take you through and just talk about this king that is coming. You see, have we begun to understand just who he is? Matthew presents Jesus as the king of kings. as the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. But he's also the king of the ages. The King of Heaven, the King of Glory, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. He was a prophet before Moses, a priest after Melchizedek, a champion like Joshua, an offering in the place of Isaac, a king from the line of David, a wise counsellor above Solomon, a beloved, rejected, exalted son like Joseph, and yet he was far more. The heavens declare his glory. The firmament shows his handiwork. He who is, who was, and who always will be. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and Omega, the Aleph and the Tau, the A and the Z. He's the first fruits of them that slept. He is the I am that I am, the voice of the burning bush. He's the captain of the Lord's host. He was the conqueror of Jericho. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the very God of very God. He's our kinsman redeemer. He's our avenger of blood. He's our city of refuge, our performing high priest, our personal prophet. Our reigning king. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of theology. He's the biggest problem for the atheists. He's the miracle of the ages. He's the superlative of everything good. We are the beneficiaries of a love letter. It was written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. Yet he was crucified on a cross of wood, yet he made the hill on which it stood. In fact, we're told, by him were all things made that were made. Without him was not anything made that was made. By him are all things held together. So, a question. What held him to that cross? Well, it wasn't the nails. At any time he could have declared enough and called upon legions of angels to come to his aid. What held him to the cross was his love for you and me he was born of a woman so that we could be born of God he humbled himself so that we could be lifted up he became a servant 
so that we could be made co-heirs. He suffered rejection so that we could become his friends. He denied himself so that we could freely receive all things. He gave himself so that he could bless us in every way. He is available to the tempted and the tried. He blesses the young. He cleanses the lepers. He defends the feeble. He delivers the captives. He discharges the debtors. He forgives the sinners. He franchises the meek. He guards the besieged. He heals the sick. He provides strength to the weak. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. He serves the unfortunate. He sympathizes and he saves. His offices are manifold. His reign is righteous. His promises are sure. His goodness is limitless. His light is matchless. His grace is sufficient. His love never changes. His mercy is everlasting. His word is enough. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's irresistible. And he's invincible. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Man cannot explain him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but learned that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault with him. The witnesses couldn't agree against him, and Heron couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. He has always been, and always will be. He had no predecessor and will have no successor. You can't vote him out, and he isn't going to resign. His name is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen.